Welcome to Morbid Medley and Happy Holidays! This is Kimberly LaBerge, and if you're listening as this is first dropping, it should be first thing on Christmas Eve. And there's nothing that this warm, festive holiday season makes me think of like cozying up with a great horror movie. First, before I dive into all of that good stuff that we've got in store for you, I just want to thank you all for your support. This is a brand new podcast and coming from zero funding, just born out of the love of the horror genre and sharing that love with other people and their various artistic mediums. And we've already hit our first hundred listeners, so thank you all so much for tuning in. It really does make a difference, and I'm glad I'm not just shouting into the void. It's good to know that there are a handful of people on the other side of this microphone. Now, on to the fun bit. This episode's going to be a little bit different. I've specifically chosen all holiday horror content for you guys today, so the structure is a little bit different. We have a handful of guests who are going to be on and discussing with me, and those segments are going to be slightly longer than you're used to, so bear with me and get ready for some holiday fun. The first segment will be discussing Black Christmas and its importance to the horror genre with Kristen Lear. Next, I'll be reading the short story, The Santas, by David Schultz. Next, I'll have a reduced-length version of Kimberly's Roundup. Since we're spending so much time talking about other movies, I'm going to keep mine short and sweet for you guys today. Next, I'll be discussing gremlins and puppetry and small creature horror with Cass Mayhall. Lastly, I'll be playing Chapter 1 of What the Frost, the first installment of the Santa Saves Christmas series by Ben Wolfe. Kicking us off today, I had the lovely opportunity to sit down with Kristen Lear. Kristen Lear has a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology, Classical Civilizations, and Religious Studies, and is currently on the PhD path for Communications and Media. I'm glad she had the opportunity to join me and discuss one of my absolute favorite movies, Black Christmas. This next segment is going to include plenty of spoilers for the Black Christmas franchise. That includes the 1974 version, the 2006 version, and the 2019 version. Proceed with caution. Hey, Kristen, how's it going today? It is going really good. It is snowing. And damn, it's been a long time since I've had to do this podcast. (laughs) I'm a little nervous. Well, hey, I mean, you're the first guest on this podcast. So I'm a little nervous too, but I'm excited. And I'm excited to talk about Black Christmas. Do you want to tell me a little bit about your experience with the franchise? Oh, yes. I think, uh, so Black Christmas, I was introduced to when I was in high school, which probably wasn't like the greatest time to be exposed to slasher films, as they were very close to home with a lot of the, you know, female protagonists, the age dynamics, the kind of like, experiences were very close to home. But I thought really, it was gonna be like, oh, you know, like gremlins, you know, it's kind of a cheeky horror film with uh, some Christmas elements, but it was gonna be like this fun thing. And damn, it was too real. I was shocked, but it was such an in an entertaining way. And I just remember in high school being interested in it and then, you know, 
he grew up, got distracted with school, you know, the whole thing. And it wasn't until recently that I really took time to like revisit a lot of classic horror films. Because when you read stuff as a kid or watch stuff, you kind of remember feelings and like certain scenes, but you don't really remember the big message. And, you know, I started my TikTok, um, which is so weird to say. Um, (laughs) um, I was getting really bored and I didn't have an outlet to really like talk about all these ideas in my head about horror. And I started my TikTok um, about horror movie reviews. And, you know, I was like, damn, I haven't heard about Black Christmas in a while from anyone. And I had need to rewatch it. And I rewatched it and I was like, gosh, darn it. Like, this is such a good movie. So progressive for its time. And I know that's really silly to say because it was during the time of like second wave feminist movements and all that stuff. But, you know, this was a slasher film before Halloween. And that film is the setup for so many slasher narratives, stereotypes, final girls that actually are kind of in some ways counterintuitive to the progressiveness that Black Christmas really laid the groundwork for, which we can get into in a little bit. But but yeah, so I, I did the TikTok and I've been like, it's been ruminating in my head, you know, TikTok, you only get like a minute to three minutes talking and then people like it and you're like, okay, cool. People like my ideas and then you move on so then when you came around with this podcast and you're like it's the holidays I need to talk about Black Christmas I was like I got you I (laughs) we need to talk about this movie more because I don't think it's been analyzed as well as it could be seriously I so my experience with it I only got seriously into horror within the past couple of years and before that I've always been really interested in it and terrified by it so <laughs> I am the person who I have seen all of the the looper videos the ranked vid- videos the watch mojos those stupid videos <laughs> um but then I would look up the Wikipedia plots and then read the analysis of movies and then look up the specific scenes and to the point that I was practically watching the movies anyway Um, And so over the past couple of years, I've been revisiting the ones that have stuck out to me and listening to. I'm a big fan of the podcast, The Horror Virgin, where they Mm -hmm. kind of play by play through different movies. And this is one that they had actually covered. And I remember them saying that it was slow and boring. It's half written because you don't know who the killer is. And yeah, I know. I know. And that um, the acting's terrible and all this I know, I know. Wait. What you guys can't see is Christian's jaw on the floor right now. Wait, are um, you like? Ta- are they? Were they talking about the, this? Is 1974. We're talking about the 1974 version because it's so different from the other versions. Like you can't mix them up. Which other so, versions are stupid? I'm sorry. I know, I know. Oh. So I went in and I was like, I feel like I should watch this one. People say that like it's an early feminist classic, and I watched it. And similar to you, I'm like this supersedes all of the you know slasher tropes that follow it in a feminist lens like this is a stronger piece about womanhood and women's danger than most movies I think even fit and you know we we had talked a little bit before about how I've I've seen the two remakes and they are I'll address them separately 2006 god awful ruins everything it misses the mark in every way Everything that made this metaphor interesting, they just boiled down to, you know, scary, creepy characters. Um, But then the 2019 one really begins to hit some of these themes on the head, but almost so aggressively that it counterintuits the nuance of the original Black Christmas. And so I keep falling back on, I still feel that Black Christmas is, I, I will say this confidently, 
in my opinion, the best traditional slasher. It doesn't miss the mark. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I know that you are a very prolific horror analyst. <laughs> I love your work. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the the themes that we're looking at in this movie? Yes, yes. I don't. I wouldn't call myself prolific. You just. Yeah. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Like just some background too. Like I said, I know I mentioned TikTok, but like right now I'm in graduate school, so not an expert completely yet. One in the making, but a lot of my research focuses on you know trauma, media, and culture, and a lot of the trauma narratives that I've been focusing on has been cultural trauma in horror movies. And we have a lot of amazing movies coming out, like Nanny was just released, which talks about immigration trauma, um, intergenerational trauma. Really need to put that on your list to watch soon because it was amazing. But when revisiting classics, I feel like within the lens of like femininity, trauma, and I don't want to use that as a buzzword um, necessarily, but it really sparks up a lot of contemporary revisitations to these films that I feel like was often glossed over because of the time that it was, you know, created. So for those that don't know about Black Christmas in 1974, which is the one I like to focus on, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, basically you have a sorority group of girls that are about to go on their Christmas breaks. Um, they're in college and they keep getting this very horrific um, what we back in the day we called prank callers, you know, this prank caller and it's a guy who's making these horrible voices, pig noises, screaming, all these things. And it's very invasive. And it's very, I just love this. There's this image there that has this pan shot of all the women surrounded by this phone. And, you know, it's a, it's a landline and they have a big scene where it's very like, you know, timely, this guy is like trying to find the landline, all that stuff, but you just see their faces and it, any female audience member watching this film knows that face because every woman has had some experience of an unwanted invasive moment from a male individual either through a digital medium and back then it was a phone now we can relate to that with like texting and the coolest thing about it that I guess like the horror virgin podcasters didn't like is that you never know who the killer is because as you know throughout the film it's a slasher film one of the OGs. So a lot of the quote unquote stereotypes that we would like roll our eyes over now is actually very like inventive during that time. But one by one, the girls are killed. And there's a lot of interesting dynamics with um, police officers. Actually, the police officer in Black Christmas is also, I believe, the dad in Nightmare on Elm Street. Fun fact. So he's also cool. And he's like, really good looking. But that's a whole thing. Um <laughs> it's like an older like dad protector kind of like hotness I don't know what it is but whatever but um, okay I just saw Violent Night this week and I have weird second Santa problems now so I can't judge you for that one um yeah I don't know it's it's a look it's like the classic 70s older guy look but as you continue on you know there is the one quote-unquote final girl that survives and what's interesting about this final girl is that she isn't a virgin. She isn't like not like naive. You know, the stereotypes that again, Laurie Stroyd from Halloween was kind of um, clouded with and ascribed upon. She has a sexual life. She has a partner and she got pregnant. And the biggest thing with this movement of why we view it as a progressive feminist lens is that it talks about abortion. It talks about this dynamic and tension between her and her male partner of where she gets pregnant and she's in college. And she's like, I don't feel like this is the right time for me. 
also the guy's a dickhead so why would you want his kid oh. um <laughs> as you come to find out too and it's this interesting tension of usually the girl who survives at the end is the one who's naive the one who isn't tainted by any sexual um distractions or isn't trying to be too progressive to like be able to overthink their survivability but what I find really interesting about it is not only this relatability of the dynamics of the male perpetrator who is completely unknown and the females who are often under his demise, but you have really the setup of the final girl actually being someone who has, quote unquote, experience, real life, um, hard decisions that she's had to make. And because of those, she's the perfect individual to be able to be the counteractive person to the perpetrator. And I think it's interesting, too, that the one female and I, I've been kind of toying with how to phrase this. So I apologize in advance because I was thinking about like what I wanted to talk about before I came on. But I find it interesting that the one female who has, quote unquote, experience of possibly having a conscious decision of taking a life, which is Again, take that with a grain of salt. Um, we are pro-choice here. But <laughs> but that idea of her having a choice and agency in whether she is going to have this child birth of life sets her up very well to be prepared to, quote unquote, take a life, which is defend herself against the perpetrator who is Billy. And in that way, she's defending herself and her femininity from being basically symbolically annihilated. And I don't think that's often very like, talked about or teased out and it's a very real situation that happens time and time again so closing in on my tangent which I know is long and a little like all over the place but what I find so interesting about Black Christmas is that even though it got mixed reviews on being a slasher film it was made in 1974 but then went on to inspire Halloween in 1978 the Halloween film John Carpenter's Halloween film he went in with the mindset of like, what would a sequel to Black Christmas be? But then he completely flips the stereotypes, or I should say not stereotypes, but the narratives, the tropes that Black Christmas laid out really well and completely flipped it on its head to where the one who survived in Black Christmas, where she has this experience, she's sexually like aware of herself, she understands her boundaries and everything, and she's very like cooperative with voicing her agency. To them getting Laurie Stroyd, which I'm not hating on Laurie Stroyd. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. She is amazing. Love her. Would do anything for her. But it was just so shocking to like realize the groundwork that Black Christmas made. And then John Carpenter be like, let's change it up. And I feel like that has to be because of the gaze that's imposed on Halloween. You know, Halloween was a very male gaze oriented film. And even though we have that male gaze in Black Christmas, we see female resistance towards it. And we don't necessarily see that explicitly within Halloween. Now take that with a grain of salt, because, you know, we have amazing scholars like Barbara Creed and um, Carol Clover, who actually talk about final girls, you know, we've casted them as these victims time and time again, they're kind of like, boring, but these women came out and they're like, hey, actually, they also show resistance. So when I say that Lori Stroyd, quote unquote, doesn't have resistance, maybe I should say it more as like their acts of resistance are very different. And personally, I like the Black Christmas resistance a lot better. The female characters were funny. They were cheeky. They were sassy. They were like really trying and they fought back constantly. It was just so interesting seeing 
the back and forth between those two. And that's my rant. Sorry. <laughs> no, for sure. Um, you know, I completely agree that the portrayal of the women in the original Black Christmas is, I mean, I feel like it more accurately portrays what being a young college-aged woman looks like than a lot of movies try to do. And one of the things I find interesting about it is looking back at it with a modern lens, you can't help but try to pick out who the final girl will be. And really, when you're looking at their dynamics, it's less laid out than, you know, what Carpenter started and what really continues to carry on to slashers even still. They are just a powerful ensemble of women. And one thing that I find interesting is it's not just that the main character has this agency, but all of them behave logically, smartly. They behave in ways that work together. There's not really a lot of catty feuding other than normal digs at one another because they're living in this, you know, sorority home together. And even more so as it goes on, it's not like they are fighting against what the audience is cheering for. They're making the decisions that based off the information available to them in that moment make absolute sense. And we end up with this particular final girl who it is up in the air at the end as if she may or may not live which I think is really interesting so for those of you guys who maybe haven't seen the movie or haven't seen it in a while this whole thing is portrayed through you don't really see the killer at all you only see an eye through a door that's cracked one time in the whole movie and the rest of the time you don't see the killer you see you know the killer cam that is perpetuated with this breathing, this heavy breathing. So you can feel his gaze the entire movie, but you don't know when he's going to strike. He doesn't strike every time Killer Cam comes into view. You just have this sense of being watched, which I think is a really clever mirror to women's fears and women's what is often portrayed as paranoia in that you never know who it's going to be. And because he's unnamed, he could be any man. He could be anyone. So they set up this crappy boyfriend of the main character who is very, he's angry at her because she's, you know, asserting her agency and her choice to not carry through her pregnancy. He threatens her. Everyone thinks that he might be the killer. It's kind of unspoken. And then later people begin to voice that opinion. And so at the end, the main character kills him or it's portrayed as if she kills him maybe she didn't, maybe the killer got him, but it looks as if she killed the boyfriend. And then we end up with her in bed and everyone leaves. And then we go back to killer cam and you can hear the breathing and you know that even though we have still taken down one male perpetrator who has been a danger onto this girl's life, he has threatened her, but she's still in danger inherently, which I find just absolutely interesting and even though the i'll touch back on the 2019 one real quick even though that one does hit the feminist lens on the head pretty aggressively um but in ways that it's fun you watch it it doesn't completely miss the point of the original it does end in this way that the women all band together and take down all the bad men which is great and i love that but it trivializes the fact that fighting back quote unquote, which is something that they advocate for in that movie, is eternal. And it's not something that can be solved, frankly, in one stab. You can't stab a killer and immediately solve the issue of womanhood. And so I really appreciate the nuance that Black Christmas portrays when it says, hey, she fought for herself. She did the thing that she didn't want to do. And she's still in danger. And everyone who is watching over her and trying to protect her in this moment 
leaves because life goes on and danger doesn't leave. Yeah, I feel like that's a really good point with that. And I feel like, you know, it is, I think we're, horror is starting to get a little bit out of it because we were inspired a lot in horror with the hashtag me too movement and that's how you know halloween the revising of that in um 2018 came around and you know it started this whole revival of movies that really wanted to really you know like you said hit on the head this feminist lens and it kind of since some movies did it a little too hard to where you know it's like if we all band together we can conquer you know the badness that's often attributed to females but what often, like you said, happens, and this is why I like the 1974 versions, like just because you get rid of one threat doesn't mean there's another one right there waiting. And even though it was a misdirection of her overcoming a male perpetrator, which was her abusive, like, kind of boyfriend, because you actually didn't really, she didn't get the real killer. I think it's that metaphor of like, there's always going to be another, you know, another person who's going to harass you on the phone. There's going to be another person that who's going to like, you know, bother you just because of who you are as a woman. And I feel like that is where Black Christmas got a lot of things right. So I do want to touch though, you know, because I love putting history with movies is understanding the outside context of why probably Black Christmas didn't hit as hard as it probably could have. Because unfortunately, and this kind of goes into the, you know, the metaphor, symbolism, and realism that Black Christmas brings about, in 1974, that was during the time of Ted Bundy's killing spree. And for those that don't know, and I really hate, like, like, I hate the romanticism, the dramatization that's happening a little bit right now with serial killers, but it is important historical context that during 1974 to 1978, Ted Bundy was actually killing young women, specifically those. There was the sorority house in Florida that was under a demise of Ted Bundy's rampage. And so I feel like, you know, people have talked about that a little bit with the outcoming of Black Christmas because of what was happening with that. No one really wanted to see Black Christmas because it was too real. It was too real of a male perpetrator targeting a sorority house and having a killing spree, basically. And so I feel like that also was something that impacted the outside, again, of the art versus the art itself. That impacted probably the viewing of it and why we pay more attention to Halloween than the sorority house um, Black Christmas dynamic. Because, you know, there was a lot of dynamics happening with serial killers during that time and not a lot of people realize, you know, horror is really, really like popular now, but horror back in the seventies, that was for like weird people. That was something that was like, we don't understand why these directors are getting money. Like John Carpenter got shit, didn't have shit money for Halloween. And he made amazing money off of it and still makes money off of it. You know, he made a joke. He's like, oh, these revivals, I still get my check. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but I think it's important to realize, you know, like, and that what's, that's kind of like what makes me a little sad to hear that some people don't really understand Black Christmas is that even during the film itself and outside of the film, if we look at it historically, there's a lot of outside factors that affect a movie's history and because it, it developed a cult following. It wasn't as big as Halloween. It had more of a cult following. And that's because of certain dynamics that were happening during that time and the culture, attitude, relationships that people were having within the United States with horror film in general. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, and there's something to be said about not just in the context of Ted Bundy, but for slashers on the whole and what they became, one of the delights of the slasher film, and I, I love a corny, good corny <laughs> slasher, is that there's something about it that's so removed from reality. Mm-hmm. And this continues not only from Halloween, but this continues on for all the really big ones, you know, it, it's goofy. There's a goofiness to it that you can't contextualize as possible. And the fears and the reactions to women's fear in Black Christmas are so real. The biggest reason why these women keep dying and continue to be unsafe even after the close of the movie is that their fears are trivialized by the men that they go to about them. They go to the cops and they explain that they're receiving these horrid phone calls and the cops decide, oh no, whatever, it's a prank call, you know, it doesn't matter. And they they ignore it, they take down a number as if something might go on, but it really, it keeps getting pushed back and pushed back even when their friend goes missing. And it's not until they have not one, but two men with them who then go back to the police officers and say, hey we're really concerned that our friend is missing and something's going on here, that then they start to go into it. And even then, after we've had people continually push for, hey, there's something going wrong here in all the shots of the police station, all the cops are shooting the shit with each other and laughing. And there's a random shot of, there's a man who runs in who took a bullet to the ass, who then makes the primary cop who's on the phone with our girl, who's literally in danger in this moment, say, I'll get back to you. And he leaves her, you know, and this really, I think, resonates with a lot of modern attempts, especially following the Me Too movement of saying, well, women have to fight back. Women have to fight back when this, I think, more accurately portrays the scary and upsetting reality that when the system isn't going to fight for you, you are very small and the system's very big. And sometimes you just don't have enough resources and enough expertise and capability to fight in the way that's necessary for a specific circumstance. And I want to reel this back to say, I'm not saying that women shouldn't fight. We should always continue to fight for our equality and for how we're treated and fight for women in power who will listen to women when they have these fears and will understand what's being trivialized. But There is kind of a grim reality to it at this moment that I think is really well reflected in Black Christmas. And it's unpleasant. And so I think even now when people watch it and have all this research that says, here's why Black Christmas is so progressive and so important, people don't want to hear it. People don't want to look at it because it's not a fun slasher. It's real life and it's scary. And I think that's what makes it really effective, even if it makes it more upsetting if that makes sense no I think that makes sense and I think like you touched on something really important about Black Christmas is like the natural dynamics of the characters because it is very like haunting and grim and real but there are comedy reliefs I mean even Steve Martin who's like a comedy genius said he was inspired a lot and by Black Christmas, which it goes to show like, you know, comedy and horror very hand in hand. We see that a lot with Jordan Peele in his upcoming movies and stuff like that as well with like Nope and Wendell Wilde, I believe is the title of the animation. 
And I feel like that is where we have to realize that not every horror movie has to be, especially those that I want to go into horror and like want to make horror or write about it. It doesn't always have to be this very seriousness all the time because life goes on. And that's basically why Black Christmas is so smart is that no one knows they're being hunted down. So they're going to continue on their lives. You know, they have the funny, like, I think she's like the house mom. Yes. The house. She's funny. She's hilarious. And then it's so heartbreaking to see one of the girl's fathers come around. But you have interesting dynamics with him, you know, seeing like all these like, you know, sexual things on the walls and like, oh, what is my daughter doing in the sorority house? And it's just real. And I feel like that's where those brief comedy reliefs allow people to really get more transported into the narrative because it's like oh these are real people they're not always serious there's not only always these like tense moments because then that can just be very overwhelming I mean Baba Duck is like a good example of that where it's like it was a great movie don't get me wrong but oh my gosh the themes of grief are just so much and you're just like I hate it here <laughs> it's just there and it just doesn't stop and so at the end of Baba Duck, it's like, oh, this finally, God, <laughs> we got some color here. But um, with Black Christmas, it's different, you know. And you know, it. I think it's really important too to like, you know, I, I mentioned about the Ted Bundy thing, but this was actually based off of a real incident too that happened in uh, Montreal, Canada, where it happened around Christmas time. And I think, you know, the director was really trying to capture like what are young girls during the 1970s talking about engaging with you know again this was like second wave feminist movement and what were they like this is college you know they aren't gonna be like dumb or they're not gonna even be like naive or like all these things and I think he was just really smart with capturing the dynamics very well amongst the girls and it wasn't irritating you can tell there was a lot of sisterhood between them even in the moments where they were like fighting against each other but then also just showing the real dynamics of police because, you know, it was partnered with also this other tragedy that was happening. A young girl was missing. And so there's just these layers of like realism of like, oh, it's not just the girls we're focusing on. It, the girls are set in another story that's happening with another girl missing. And the police are trying to figure out this and they're trying to figure out it's like it's just the layering is so smart to where it's not overwhelming, but it puts you in this realist state of like being transported. And I feel like, you know, we're getting back into that layering and that like realism mysticism that's happening again what is real what isn't because even like the film a wounded fawn i mean if you watch that that was such a good movie and i love like the cinematography of it because it reminds me a lot of the 1970s like aesthetic and so basically my point being with all this is i think you've touched really good on like this dynamic of real engaged with with characters to where like you can have feminist themes without hitting it on the head too much because then it's just not real it's like okay we, what do you want me to focus on do you want me to focus on the horror movie do you want to educate me on like hashtag me too like what, what right. are we doing right what are we doing and frankly if you are telling a story that features characters who behave like real women and if you have a women-centric ensemble who are responding to real life issues and responding to male perpetration of any kind if you tell that story authentically it will be feminist. If you are genuinely putting that story on the screen, you don't have to tell us that it's feminist. We'll know. We'll know because women know what we've experienced. We recognize it when other people are experiencing it. And there is a certain 
catharsis to being understood on the screen, even if it doesn't end up with signs in the air, fists in the air, we did it, women rock. You know, frankly, just being understood has value. And I think that this is a great example of that. 100%. I totally agree. You know, there's dynamics of, you know, in film studies, we talk about like queer baiting, which I even hate saying that because it sounds so academic-y. But we have like these tropes that account like, you know, oh, we're just going to throw in the iconic Black character in there. We're going to throw in the iconic Latina character in there and call it representation checkmark. We did it. Or we're going to throw in the one LGBTQ person that's supposed to represent all LGBTQ audiences, which is not like fair. And I feel like like just what you said, we'll see it. We'll get it because it's real. You don't have to like representation matters 110%, but authentic engagement, realism is also something that has to be done in the work of horror. And honestly, horror, I mean, I'm not even banking or bashing on horror because like out of all the genres in cinema, like that is the probably the most inclusive genre. And I stand by that. Um, (laughs) Because even yeah, it has its problematic tropes, it has its problematic narratives. But again, there's a lot of inclusivity and narratives and stories that are being made and putting attention to that makes it way better than a lot of like stuff that's coming out these days. Right. Well, I mean, it creates a space for authenticity because most horror, rather than being interpersonal, most horror, again, there are exceptions here, but it assigns the antagonist to be an outside force of some kind, whether it's a killer, whether it's aliens or monsters, or whether it's a disease or something, there's something bigger that we're focusing on. And because of that, it creates this space where you can watch people authentically react to something else. And that, I think, is a more accurate mirror to who they are, rather than people speaking to one another and getting deep about who they really are, which is the kind of stuff that you see in a lot of even very good drama and romance and even heartwarming comedies. Because horror has this other puzzle piece to it, I think it opens the door for authenticity. You're absolutely right. I feel really sad that there's podcasts out there hating Black Christmas, but again... And I I have to back up for a moment and say I love the horror virgin. For some reason, anyone who's a fan of them listens to that, knows that I, I love their perspectives and stuff. But I feel like this is one that you gotta you gotta go in prepared for what it is and not looking for you can't go in looking for Halloween. It's not Halloween. It comes before it, it's doing something different, it has a different role in horror history. I think that's a great note to probably end on because I realized we've been talking for a while. <laughs> So, Kristen, where can people find you if they want to engage with any of your work or continue to follow any of your pods? Oh, man. Basically, I would probably resort people to TikTok right now. So it's K-A-L-E-E-R 37. And that's where I do a lot of my real quick snippet reviews. It's just like a quick thing for me to do as a grad student because a lot of my stuff is writing and I need something like I need quick validation like okay I'm cool. (laughs) I mean upcoming I kind of have been toying with podcasting for a while. I have different experiences. I'm trying to revive my own 
old horror podcast. Uh, what the fuck did we just watch? Ooh. I'm trying to figure it out. RSS feeds are bitch. But those are some old, like, don't judge too much. I was 19 years old. Uh, <laughs> I'm new to podcasting, all that stuff. The one site that you could definitely follow me on that I'm trying to, like, really work on, it's called SuccessfullyGivingUp.com. I know it's really like a fun name, um, but that's like one of my um, podcasts that I've been trying to keep up with. But again, grad school is a thing, but that's where I'm kind of making it like also my academic page. I have a lot of horror movie projects out there. So if you ever want to see that stuff, my Twitter is probably another good spot. But overall, just ask Kimberly. Um, <laughs> but thanks so much. I love these quick, like deep dives into horror movies because. As I say on my TikTok, um, no one in my house wants me to hear about it. <laughs> That's just, I can, go. I can only subject my husband to too to so many disturbing movies. Even today, I was right. I was watching Nanny, and he just heard screaming, and he came in, and he was like, oh my god, are you okay? And I was like, oh, it's just a movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. And he's like, can you stop? Please, take a break. Oh. And I'm that's the nightly conversation with my fiance. He's like, oh, what do you want to watch? I'm like, a horror movie? He's like, could we watch something else tonight? I'm like, okay, okay. On that note, thank you so much for coming in, Kristen, coming in virtually for us today. And everyone else, you should all go watch Black Christmas. Make sure it's the 1974 one or don't waste your time. And it's free. <laughs> There's a lot of places we can watch. It's free. It's everywhere. So you can go enjoy it wherever you like to watch. Thanks so much. Thank you again, Kristen, for taking the time to discuss that with me. I honestly think that more people need to be talking about Black Christmas. So if any of you listeners haven't seen the movie yet, please go ahead and check it out and let me know what you think. Write us at Morbid Medley on all social media platforms. Next up is David Schultz's short story, The Santas. This story first appeared in Polar Borealis magazine, issue number 8 of December 2018, and is currently available for reprint. David F. Schultz writes short fiction from Toronto, Canada, where he is lead editor at Speculative North Magazine and organizes the Toronto SFF Writers Group. His 80-plus publications have appeared through publishers such as Augur, Fusion Fragment, and Diabolical Plots. Thank you so much, David, for submitting, and here we dive into his terrible, wonderful story. The Santas by David F. Schultz Jacob stood in the pale glow of the tinseled tree. Christmas Eve, a time when the loneliest among us, in the quiet solitude of their homes, can reflect on their emptiness. A blizzard outside, cold as death. It was like this when the officers came to Jacob's door. Their words were a blur, something about a transport truck and a slippery highway and how the paramedics did everything they could. Either Jacob asked about it, or they offered, but he didn't need to identify the bodies, or he didn't want to. Then he thought of the strawberry rhubarb jam his grandma used to make at Christmas. He gripped the wooden rail of his stairway. Colored lights wound along its length. They glowed like nothing had changed, mockingly oblivious. Stockings hung lifeless over an empty fireplace quiet and somber, and Jacob realized how meaningless the holiday really was. He found himself in the bathroom. The bathtub was full, 
ready. There was a straight razor on the counter, ready, only ever used once. He'd bled everywhere. Not yet, he said. Advil first. One Advil, two Advil, three Advil, four. Five Advil, six Advil, seven Advil, more. And the caps and bottles floated like little boats on the bathwater. Then the lights went out in the bathroom, and the background hum of the house went dead. God damn it, Jacob said. A power out in the middle of a fucking blizzard, he thought. I'll freeze to death. Christ almighty, he muttered, then fumbled through the dark house. Jacob put on pajamas. He lit the fireplace, grabbed a blanket, and bundled on the couch next to the fire. Then he went to sleep. Jacob awoke to a creaking floorboard. A gangly silhouette stood in front of the fireplace. The figure turned its head slowly towards him. In the flicker of the dying fire, Jacob saw a sickly green face with a strange rash. I know when you're awake, the man said in a raspy voice, then snickered. Jacob screamed and the man scrambled away. Wet footsteps slapped the floor towards the stairs. Emboldened by the stranger's retreat, Jacob leapt from the couch, grabbed a fire poker, and pursued. Come here, you bastard, Jacob yelled. Jacob nearly slipped on the slick floorboards. Then he heard a loud thud and a groan. There was the man, no longer fleeing, but curled in the darkness at the base of the stairs, tripped on the cord of the Christmas lights. Jacob approached slowly. Who the hell are you? I'm Santa. Don't fucking tell me you're Santa Claus. Santa Claus, said the man. That fat asshole? No, I'm Santa Murgus. And just then, the power came back on. The skinny stranger was lit by the glow of a hundred colored lights. He wore something like a Santa Claus costume, but blue and green instead of the usual red and white. His face had green scales like a fish, two holes in place of a nose, and enormous yellow eyes. "'Are you just going to stand there?' the creature said. "'Or are you going to help me with these lights?' It fumbled with the cord caught around its leg. "'What are you?' Jacob said. "'I just told you I'm Santa fucking Murgus.' Then he stood, drops falling from his sopping costume. "'You weren't expecting claws or you wouldn't have lit the fire, am I right?' "'I, I wasn't expecting anyone.' "'Well, here I am. Now are we going to do this or what?' "'Do what?' What do you think? You're the one who summoned me. What in God's name are you talking about? Santa Murgus sighed. Santa Claus comes to give presents to good kids, right? Right. And Santa Piotr comes to give coal to bad kids, right? I thought that was Santa Claus. You don't even know about Piotr? What are they teaching in school these days? Jacob shrugged, still wielding the fire poker like a baseball bat. You mind putting that thing away, Murgus said? Not until you tell me what you're doing in my house. Why don't I just show you? Then Murgus started slowly up the stairs. Come on. Jacob followed with fire poker raised. Where the hell do you think you're going? Everyone knows about claws, Murgus said. 
Stockings by the fireplace, milk and cookies, all that shit. But they never teach you about the other Santas. Other Santas? Like Santa Pewter, and Santa Tobias, and me. Santa Murgis. You remembered, Murgis said with a grin, and made his way into the bathroom. He motioned to the bathtub, full of water. Claus uses chimneys, I use the bath. So of course you understand, when we saw the chimney was lit and the tub was full, we thought it was my turn. I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't believe in Santa Claus, and I've never even heard of you. I wasn't trying to invite you in. Well, I'm here now. Murgus dipped his hand into the water. So you want your gift, or not? Jacob shuddered at the thought of what sort of gift this freak show might have in mind. I'll pass. Murgus squinted his big yellow eyes. We Santas have a sort of power-sharing agreement, you know. Division of responsibilities and such. Claus gets the good kids. Pyotr gets the bad kids. Murgus waited awkwardly for his prompt. And you? Single adults with suicidal ideation. You get a lot of work? Not as much as Claus, but it's still busy this time of year. Anyway, Claus has his bag of gifts, stupid toys and bullshit, because he's got to deal with kids. But me, I give the gift of clairaudience. Jacob stared blankly. Ugh, it means, Murgus said, that I can let you hear things from the spirit world. Like, for instance, your family. You want to hear from them, don't you? Jacob lowered his poker. Murgus swirled the water. It bubbled. Then Jacob thought he heard, from somewhere in the gurgling water, the faintest trace of a voice. No words, just a distorted murmuring. Sorry, said Murgus. That doesn't sound quite right. It's them, Jacob said. It was unmistakable now, even without words. His wife and daughter. Their voices bubbled up from the tub. But no words, Murgus said. No, no, this isn't right. You deserve better, don't you? You should get to talk to them. Come, come with me and we'll fix this. Come with you where? To my workshop, Murgus said, through the tub. Then he grabbed Jacob by the wrist with a cold and wet clamp of reptilian fingers. Jacob yanked his arm away and lifted the poker. Don't touch me, you creepy shit! I'm creepy! What about Claus? He's the one who sees you when you're sleeping. Why would he watch you while you're sleeping? Can't be to figure out if you're good or bad, now could it? That's creepy, if you ask me. You really have it in for Claus, don't you? He gets all the credit, Murgus said. Sorry I got so upset about it. I just want to do my part, you know? And then the water didn't work, and you didn't get to talk to your family. I just want to make it right. So what do you say? Will you go with me? Into the tub? It's like a magic sleigh, just a little more wet, and no reindeer. You first. Of course, Murgus said, and splashed into the tub. Room for one more, then we can get you in touch with your family. Jacob thought about his family, how he would do anything for just one more minute with them. Maybe even get in a bathtub with Murgus. And besides, what did he have to lose? So, he joined Murgus in the tub, cold water soaking into his pajamas, with the two of them facing each other, and Murgus grinning wildly. 
Here we go, Mergus said, and the walls of the house melted away like waterfalls. A blur of colored lights raced by, faster and faster, and suddenly stopped. They were in the middle of a cave, with smooth, polished walls, brightly lit with colored lanterns. A large wooden table spanned the room, surrounded by strange people. Jacob recognized only Santa Claus, the white-bearded fat man in the red suit, but there were many others there. In a green suit, a purple-skinned, newt-faced man. In a yellow suit, an apparent burn victim. And all the other Santas, staring at Jacob in the tub. "'You brought him here?' roared an enormous Yeti Santa in an orange suit. Oh, "'My gift wasn't working,' Mergus said. "'Mergus, Mergus, Mergus,' said the newt Santa. "'When will you pull it together?' Ho, 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 said Claus. Now is not the time, Mergus said. Are you going to help me or not? The Santas looked at each other. All right, then, an impish Santa and brown hot from his seat. Let's figure this out. He walked over to the tub and put his ear to the water. It bubbled and gurgled and hummed. The imp nodded at the sound. So, your family's all dead, right? The bluntness caught Jacob by surprise. Yeah, Mergus answered for Jacob, on the way home from Christmas shopping. Ho, 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 said Claus. Merry Christmas! And the other Santas laughed. Yes, yes, said the imp, but how? Car accident, Jacob said. I see, I see, said the imp. And how long did it take them to die? Instantaneous, Jacob said. That's what the officers had told him. No, 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 I don't think so, said the imp. That's not how water-talking works. They get to use their voice from before their death. They must have been alive for at least a few minutes. Then Jacob heard the murmuring again. The distorted, tortured gurgling of the bubbles in the water. And he fell to stabbing pain, like his intestines were being eaten from the inside. Jacob, Mergus said, and hopped out of the tub. Are you okay? Jacob sat alone in the tub. The water was filling with brown and red, leaking from Jacob's body. You're shitting blood, man, Mergus said. How much Advil did you take? Eight or nine, Jacob said, and he clutched his gut. Eight or nine pills won't do it, Mergus said. Then he turned to the other Santas. He's still mine. Bottles, Jacob said. Eight or nine bottles. The Santas murmured to each other. Then a white-robed Santa stood. He had translucent flesh, giving a clear view to organs and bones. This one is mine, the translucent Santa said. Mergus looked at Jacob. Sorry, buddy. Uh, he's right. I only deal with people who fuck up their suicide attempts. Santa Seftis will take over from here. Jacob could only groan as the pain intensified. Seftis loomed over him. Are you ready for your gift? Santa Seftis said. No, Jacob said. Seftis placed slimy hands on Jacob's head. I will send you now to see your family. 
Jacob thought of the strawberry rhubarb jam his grandma used to make at Christmas. Then Seftis pushed his head below the water. Oh man, David's piece, I love that piece so much. I think it's both creepy and unnerving, and then on top of that, very creative and unique. I love this idea of a panel of Santa gods who are involved in both kind and very unkind gifts. If you want to see any more of David's work, you can view his author webpage at davidfschultz.com or his Twitter at davidfschultz. Next up, it's time for Kimberly's Roundup, the time that I tell you everything that I've seen or watched in the past month that I think is worth mentioning. Usually I give you a big long list of things, but this one's a little bit shorter since we have a lot of movie talk in this episode already. Per usual, I promise no overt spoilers, so if you haven't seen any of these movies, no worries, you can still listen and hear my two cents. Silent Night, Deadly Night, 1984. Holy crap. I know it's a holiday horror classic, and I was thrilled to watch it. The circumstances of it are absolutely insane. It has the opportunity to potentially be a trauma-informed film, and then takes a bonkers twist to just absolute mindless slasher. The rules of it make no sense in a way that is delightful. I haven't seen Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 yet, but I've heard that most of that movie is just clips from the first movie replayed, which I think is absolutely hilarious as well. This is a movie franchise that seems to know what it is, even in its absurdity. Santa Jaws 2018. Okay, so it's Jaws, right? You've got a big shark, but it's a shark who's somehow festive and can only be killed by festive things. It's wild. Also terrible. I find for my taste that a lot of the low-budget comedy horror that's come out in later and later years as we have easier access to CGI just loses some of its charm as we don't have any puppeted elements. It's really just bad cartoons overlaid on a teen plot, and it's god-awful. Watch it if you enjoy that kind of thing. I enjoyed watching this movie. I also don't recommend this movie. Lastly, Violent Night 2022. This movie I just saw, and I'm only including it as a special ad because it really wasn't a horror movie at all, but based on the title and the fantastic history of Santa Slashers, I imagine a lot of horror fans are going to go and see this movie. The things that horror fans will love is that the kills are absolutely bonkers. They are gory and delightful. The concept of a once-was Viking Santa just beating the shit out of people fabulous. This is Christmas Does Taken, and it's a delight. Mind you, it's an action movie. It doesn't carry tension the way that a horror movie does. I think it's a dark comedy in a lot of ways, but it is not a horror movie. So as long as you go in not expecting a horror movie, I think horror fans have a lot to enjoy from this action film. Up next, we're going to be talking about a Christmas horror movie loved by children and adults alike, Gremlins. 
I'm going to be speaking with Cass Mayhall, who is an extremely talented artist and animator, as well as my best friend, so I'm really glad to have them in to discuss this movie and what we affectionately call the Lil Guy genre. Yeah, I do first want to just make sure that we both sound good, since we're kind of sitting on either side of the mic, so I'm to say something. Mm, yeah, test my levels. Woo! Test my levels, Ooh, audio test daddy. Test my levels. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, Cass, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm excited to talk about little guys. Oh, my little fellas. <laughs> little, little fella movies. Um, so we're gonna be talking about movies that we've affectionately called Lil Fellas or Lil Lil Guy movies. Um, how would what is that? What does I, that mean? The semi-official, non-official name for it is small creature movies or like small monsters. I think I see little creatures, small creatures kind of interchangeably places, but um it's things that are usually post-Gremlins 1, which Gremlins came out in 1984, and then from the time Gremlins came out until Gremlins 2 came out in 1990, there was like this wave of just wild, crazy little guy (laughs) movies where everybody wanted a piece of the pie and they just got worse and worse. Theoretically, I love them even when they're extremely bad. Oh, yes. (laughs) They got worse and worse until in 1990 they made Gremlins 2 and they like held up a mirror to it and they were like, This is what you've done. (laughs) This is what you've become. This is what you've become. (laughs) You made a spider gremlin. This is you. So, So, those are the little guy movies primarily, but I do consider. Also, the later era of, like, Puppet Master and dolls and uh, killer or demonic toys. All of those I do consider little guy movies also, but they're not really, like, small, like, little creature movies. Sure, sure. Well, and, you know, I I have to set the record that I do not watch nearly so many little guy movies as Cass does. I swear you almost solely consume... Little guy movies. It's become a genuine problem in my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) Like over Christmas now, like, you know, sitting around with my family at events and they're like, turn on something, but not one of those weird things. (laughs) Don't be watching that. I feel like like, it's born from your Muppet love. Like it's your adult variation of your lifelong. No, 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 no. Muppets Muppets are are forever. Muppets are forever. (laughs) But... (laughs) But it's developed into something that cannot be controlled and cannot be boxed in. I think so. Which is interesting. I, I, you know, didn't really get into any horror or even things like The Muppets until I was, like, in high school. Like, I didn't even... My family didn't, like... My family was not whimsical. They're not whimsical people. (laughs) They don't like, like, fiction. It's so weird. Every time I watch something that's fiction, my dad is like, you watching that weird shit again? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Did you just you not entertain me? Did you not understand stories? fiction? But, so, they followed with each other a little bit. The, the Muppets and then me liking the little guys. Because I think I would have been too afraid as a child. Of oh, for sure. Gremlins, for sure. Even starting with Gremlins. And then Puppet Master movies and demonic toys, things like that. Forget about it. 
I saw one I saw one child's play commercial on accident when I was like seven or eight years old, I think, and then was terrified of every doll that existed in my home for I had to keep American Girl dolls in the closet specifically oh because and I felt bad for them. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm afraid of you, but I saw Chucky. <laughs> no, but seriously, commercials have such an influence when you're a kid, because oh for me now as an adult, like, I, I can watch a lot of horror movies, but I don't like body horror, like, really extreme body horror, and I can trace it back to, one, I saw the DVD cover of the human centipede <laughs> as a child, and it Googled it then. Yes. I didn't watch it or anything, because that, oh my god, I still wouldn't be recovered, honestly. But then I also was watching the lyric video to A Heart Full of Love from Les Mis, the movie version, and on YouTube, because I was home alone, and I was like 13, and I was like, I'm gonna sing Cosette, and... Legit, legit. And the ad that they played before it was the trailer for Tusk. And I watched that, and it mm, it gave me issues. So anyway, I mean, I feel like we're we're slipping so far from little oh, guys. Surprise <laughs> from little guys. But to say that the things that you watch as a kid really do influence your taste as an adult, and in your case, you've really rocked and rolled into this puppet world. And although I don't watch as many little guys, I do love a good bad puppet. I love a good bad puppet. I love a good good puppet. I love a good claymation puppet hybrid yes. problem. Oh man. Or when they have such a low budget that they have to randomly animate a section oh, of it. Yes. Puppet Master does that. Mwah, mwah, chef's mm -hmm. kiss. Not flawlessly. That's not the word Mama I Mama Geddon does it. Thanks. Killing does it. I Listen, know. we're getting into my things, which are a little more modern than Cass's case, this usually. Is true. Yes. But so we're, we're talking about good puppets and good bad puppets. What makes them good or good bad? One of the weirdest particular things with the monsters, it either has to be unique enough that I don't necessarily care that it's not capable of killing, like, <laughs> or that realistically, like because- Like Puppet Master. Like Puppet Master, although Puppet Master at least gives, like, some pretty distinct weapons, like- But they're tiny. Yeah. Tiny, like, tiny little like, weapons. <laughs> for Tunneler, Tunneler has the drill on top of his head that they use, compared to something like, even like demonic toys- there's a baby, baby oopsie, who is a total absolute Chucky knockoff. All it can do is, like, bite. Kind of. <laughs> and so someone will be attacked by it and they'll be, like, screaming their heads off. And it's like, a little baby bit them on the chest. <laughs> and you're like, you're not gonna die. And so, but back to it, the for the character, the puppet to work, it needs to have either really unique characteristics like you think about like the mogwais the gremlins and the mogwais you have either you know this really cute with the mogwais who are adorable and gizmo's my fave like baby in the whole world i die for him and but then you get the gremlins who you know have unique personalities to them especially like in gremlins too where they get just mutant X-Men superpowers. It's so stupid. I love it. Or they need to have, like, legitimate fangs, claws can tear you apart kind of energy. Mm -hmm. Which, 
many things do not. And then you run into the problem of like any creature or monster that is like knee high to a cricket or whatever the hell it right. is. Knee high to a grasshopper, I guess. You know, anything that is kickable is what I describe them I as. I think about that all I the time. I think about it every time Ugh. because there are so many of them. You start to get to Chucky height, you get a little more heft. Mm-hmm. And also, he's like a creative character. I don't consider him a little guy. Is Other- he not a little guy because he's a human-ish? He's- I mean, he's not, but he's humanoid. <sighs> he's Yes. I don't think he's a little guy because I think he's too smart. That is my, I think he's too much of, like, he's got too much sentience, and also it's a possessed object, rather than an object that is, like, and so are the ones in, like, demonic toys, like, they're possessed also. You know, there's different ones sure. all over the no place. No hard but and fast rule. They're a little guy by vibes little alone. Guy, little a guy bit. by vibes alone. You know what yeah. I mean? So, I mean, so, my. what are, so you're talking about some of the things that really work. What are some of these movies that don't work for you? First of all, there's not enough. If we just have, like, a little bit of little guy, they better be excellent. And I hear a lot about, like, the first Ghoulies, which actually came out almost, like, immediately after the first Gremlins. Like, I, they were in production at the same time. But the Ghoulies, the first Ghoulies, suck, in my opinion. <laughs> I don't... They're, they're good enough puppets. They're the kind of latex, rubbery puppets where you can, like, see the back of their mouths when they open their mouths. Oh, yes. Which is a lot. You know, that's a lot of them. If you don't have a furry puppet, then usually it's going to be a rubbery, sometimes mm-hmm. very damp looking, like, yes, moistness. Like the ones in the house. Yes. Moistness, I have found, can be good and can add a lot of interesting layers of, you know, be kind of texturally nice. And it can be like trying to cover up your sins by making it look kind of goopy. And I don't know if I believe that's always the right choice. <laughs> I would say... Something like Hobgoblins. That was another one. Hobgoblins was one of the later entries into this. And to me, they fall prey to, like, they're trying to make them too much like a Joe Cool gremlin. And they're also really horny. I mean, that's a, that's a reoccurring thing with all horror movie monsters. Right. But to see it in, like, a bunch of weird little creatures is always unsettling. Well, it's funny, because I feel like that transcends the horror genre. Because I feel like horny puppets, puppets that fuck, is such a joke. It's a joke that keeps replaying Mm. itself. I don't like it. Listen, I am not necessarily a fan of that genre. Genre is a loose term for a bit (laughs) that just keeps, unfortunately, plaguing our kind. The Avenue Q disease. (laughs) But the Avenue Q disease, it happens with a lot of ventriloquism, as you get, you know, a straight guy and a horny puppet, which is just very unpleasant. I don't like it, it, but it's something that I think has stuck around, um, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think, you know, Hobgoblins, it's got flasher gremlin energy throughout the whole thing. But that one's redeemed. Some some of them are redeemed just by virtue of, like, everything else in the movie being so off the wall. Like, if the characters around them are so solidly ridiculous, then, then you can get away with not as much solid, interesting mm-hmm. monster choice. 
So I mentioned earlier some of these later entries into kind of the puppetry horror genre, which is usually really low budget stuff. Um, we together, I talked about Thanksgiving on the last episode, but we watched it together. Oof, yes. Um, so how do you feel these, you know, single creature usually, these single creature knockoffs of a lot of these puppetry trends, what do you think of those? <sighs> Something like Thanksgiving transcends the genre I think as far as I would not consider the turkey from that movie I don't think he deserves to be a little guy <laughs> I would put that much more in the same vein as Chucky I feel like Chucky really changed the vibe and turned little guys from a creature genre like a, a creature feature to a slasher yeah and so I feel like a lot of the puppet entries that we've gotten in recent history, you know, post-child's play history, have been slashers with a singular creature, rather than being a true, like, many-creature battle. Yeah, and I think that the, the charm of the earlier little creatures, the Gremlins-era stuff, a lot of it came from chaos, which is what the Gremlins established, like, that established you know, these many, many creatures all over the place doing various things, ruining everybody's lives or a bunch of people's lives at once, whereas you get something like Chucky or like Thanks Killing or... I was talking about Lamageddon Lamageddon, which is just... Which is, but again, terrible. That, I'm not picking high-budget films, but, you know, they stick with me. Anything that gets into a... or Leprechaun. Leprechaun. That was another one that I was that thinking That one of. feels debatable because it's not a puppet, it's a man. He's a little guy. He's not a little guy. He's not. He's just a he's, dude. He's, he's a leprechaun. Yes. Exactly. Leprechaun. That's like, if Troll didn't have the other creatures in Troll besides the Troll, how many times can I say Troll? Take a <laughs> shot every time I say Troll. But <laughs> if it didn't have that, then... I don't think that would be a little guy movie because the troll is one guy. Still not a slasher. I'm not sure what troll is without the little guys. It's just a troll being a problem by stealing a little girl's body. I mean, that's a problem. That's kind of fun too. That, but you know, it becomes something else. It's though. something else then, yes. So as we're getting close to the end here, what's your favorite little guy movie? <sighs> Why would you do that to me? I mean, hot take, not a hot take. Cold take. <laughs> I love Gremlins 2 very, very much. Mm. I love Gremlins 2 very, very much. I think it is the culmination of all of the really crappy tropes that they came up with through that era. Joe Dante and is his directorial style and Gremlins coming out and being like, here are all the meta jokes about everything that you've been doing. We have celebrity cameos, and it's just, it's idiotically funny. There's a musical number, which I appreciate very much also. I would say Gremlins 2 is my favorite of them. Closely followed by Gremlins yeah. 1, and then maybe, like, Critters is more of an alien. It's a little more sci-fi, too. But, like, I appreciate that they have very interesting concrete powers and things. They can roll mm -hmm. around in little balls. And there's Critters, it feels more viable that it would actually kill people. All right, yeah. and if you were to condense down, you've kind of touched on a lot of things. Oh my God, so many what things. makes a good 
little guy movie, a, a good creature movie, not to be mistaken for a creature feature, which not, is a different movie. Yeah. Little creature feature, mini creature feature. A little, little creature. I think the best, you got chaos, you got many characters, I think is always necessary. You gotta have diversity in those characters as far as like what they look like to at least the extent that they have semi-individual personalities. You gotta have semi-solid creature design that lends itself to actual conflict and people being able to, f being able to fight or be attacked by things rather than um, the kind of phenomenon of essentially just hitting people with action figures. There's there's some later Puppet Master stuff that feels a little bit like that. <laughs> like you're just hit, like a kid hitting their sibling with a Barbie doll. Well, that's awesome. And no one does it better than the original. So Merry oh. Christmas, everyone. And clearly you heard it here. You should go watch Gremlins 2 because it's the best. And Gremlins 1. And Gremlins 1. Merry, Quis Merry Christmas, Gizmo. Merry Christmas, Gizmo. <laughs> Next up, you'll be hearing Chapter 1 of What the Frost by Ben Wolf, the first installment in the Santa Saves Christmas story. The audio is performed by Andy McCain, who does the narration for the whole series. Ben Wolf is an award-winning author of fantasy, sci-fi, horror, and children's books. He lives in the Midwest with his wife, children, and cats. When not writing, he plays video games and chokes his friends in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I think that this book captures so much of the things that I love of holiday horror. I love something that's a little cheeky, a little silly, but still has a touch of Christmas cheer to the absurdity of a badass Santa. Enjoy Chapter 1. Chapter 1. Date. Christmas Eve. Time. 3.24 p.m. Samoan time. Location. North Pole. A shriek snapped Santa out of his slumber, and he jerked upright. His heavy stocking-clad feet hit the floor, and his girth spilled out of the bed as he stood. Another shriek. A woman's voice? No. It belonged to Crandall, one of Santa's elves, and the North Pole's stable master. Santa clapped his hands twice, and the LED lights on the ceiling gleamed to life. The door flung open, and Shelly Claus, Santa's wife, stormed in. Her evergreen nightgown clung to her in all the right places. Nick! You've got to come now! It's Crandall! Crandall wailed again, this time crying for Santa by name. Santa rubbed the sleep from his eyes. He glanced at the clock on his nightstand. 3.25 p.m. Samoan time. Fourteen hours until his first delivery, but he'd awakened 35 minutes early. Rather, Crandall's shrieks had awakened him. Now, Nick, Shelley insisted. He's hurt bad. Santa's heart pounded faster as he lumbered past Shelley and into their expansive living room. Thick pine logs formed towering brown walls, and multicolored Christmas lights lined the festive upper perimeter of the ceiling. Crandall lay in the center of the living room, surrounded by an expanding pool of blood on the lacquered pinewood floor. In place of his left hand, a red stump oozed blood. Crandall clutched his wrist with his right hand, moaning and writhing on the floor. Santa rushed over to him. Jumping gingerbread! What happened, Crandall? 
Crandall shook his head. His voice sounded even higher pitched than usual. Something's wrong, boss! S something bad! Shelly, call Gypswitch! Tell him to bring his medical bag! Already did! Centuries of experience kicked in, and Santa said, Then get some towels! We need to stop the bleeding! Shelly disappeared into the bedroom. Crandall moaned again. His voice shook as he said, It was b Blitzen! He's lost it! Got a hold of my hand! Ch ch chomped it right off! What? Santa recoiled. He's the jolliest of them all! Did you provoke him? Crandall shook his head, and tears rolled down his cheeks. He just bit me, Santa! He j just did it on his own! He's become an antlered menace! In close to a century of serving in Santa's sleigh team, Blitzen had never displayed any aggression whatsoever. Yet now Crandall lay in Santa's living room, bleeding out on the floor, naming Blitzen the culprit. He ate my hand, Santa! He ate it! Santa shook his head. Even the suggestion of it twisted his inside sour. That's absurd, Crandall. Reindeer are herbivorous. Crandall slung a slew of profanity in several languages. Santa would have warned him about landing on the naughty list for it, but he couldn't blame him, given the circumstances. Shelley returned with an armful of white towels embroidered with Christmas trees around the edges and embellished with gold and red trim. They were Santa's favorites, so of course she'd chosen them specifically. He shot her a glare. With not even a hint of regret, she fired one back at him as she crouched next to Crandall and wrapped the first of them around his bloody stump. The fabric reddened to a deep Christmas crimson immediately. Like Crandall's hand, those towels would never be the same again. Get your head out of the snow and listen to me, Santa! Crandall growled. Blitzen bit off my hand and ate it! He kept coming after me, but I ran out and locked him in the stable! That means... Horror gripped Santa's very soul, and he barely managed to stifle a gasp. He's in there with the rest of them! Wide-eyed, Santa bolted upright. He hurried over to the closet, pulled out his white rabbit fur traveling coat, the heaviest coat he owned, and tossed it onto the nearest kitchen chair. He looked at Shelly. I've got to handle this. No kidding, she said, her voice flat. Santa shot her another glare. Crandall moaned, and Shelly wrapped one of the towels around his shoulders. The expanding pool of blood reached the polar bearskin rug on the floor in front of their walrus leather sofa and stained the edge of its scarlet. Santa lamented the damage, but he had more pressing concerns. If Blitzen had truly gone mad, on Christmas Eve no less, there was little time to intervene. He grabbed Cherry, his silver 12-gauge shotgun, from the hooks above the fireplace mantle. He blew the dust off the top of its three barrels, ran his fingers over its engraved cherry wood stock, and polished it all to a quick holiday shine. He popped it open, confirmed the three shells inside, and clanked it shut. He leaned cherry against the doorpost and tugged on his boots. I'm going. Are you? We'll be fine, Shelley snapped. Gypswitch will be here soon. Just go take care of it. Santa's jaw tightened but he pulled on his traveling coat, clasped his black leather belt around it, opened the front door to his house, and stepped into the howling landscape. Arctic winters meant no sunshine and bitter cold, 
and they lasted from October clear into early March. He tightened his grip on Cherry and squinted into the darkness. Icy wind whipped tiny granules of snow that stung his cheeks, nose, and forehead. Were it not for his home's well-lit exterior and the LED lampposts that lined his path, he would have been all but blind. Even though cold temperatures couldn't harm him, one of the benefits of being Santa Claus, he still hadn't braved a blizzard like this for decades. He wouldn't have tonight either, but he couldn't ignore an elf missing a hand and claims of a carnivorous reindeer loose in his stables, especially on Christmas Eve. He unlatched his fingers from the shotgun and scratched under his thick white beard. Then he checked for his bowie knife on his belt. It still hung there, where he'd left it. Just in case. Snow crunched under Santa's black boots with each hurried step toward the old wooden stable. He shifted his traveling coat on his shoulders, the same coat he wore when delivering presents and making public appearances at shopping malls all over the world. He stopped at the stable doors and pressed his ear against the wooden slats, listening. Even amid the roar of the arctic wind around him, he still heard a low growl, almost a moan, earthy and primitive, emanating from inside the stable, followed by a chorus of grunts. Santa cursed, though he knew he shouldn't have. What right did he have to hold others accountable when he so often slipped up himself? He clamped down on the door handle and pulled, and the door hinges creaked amid the animal noises. He stepped inside and left the majority of the blizzard behind him. Some of the fluorescent tube lights that stretched along the center of the ceiling flickered, and others didn't give off any light at all. A few hung down and waved with the frigid wind that flowed into the stable from behind Santa. Of the five stalls on the left and six on the right, each of their half-doors remained shut but two, Donners and Blitzens. They loomed at the opposite end of the stable, in the dark, with no alternate escape route. Of course. The lights flickered again, and Santa caught a glimpse of something smeared along the wooden floor, intermingled with straw and hay. Blood. Maybe Crandall's. Maybe not. A rush of wind buffeted Santa's coat from behind, and a wave of snow streamed into the stable. With another curse, Santa pulled the stable door shut behind him, and the light shining from his house and the pathway disappeared. As bad as being enclosed with a crazed and now carnivorous 400-pound reindeer would be, letting Blitzen out alive meant danger to everyone Santa cared about. He couldn't let that happen. That's why he'd brought Cherry along. Santa kept his finger close to the trigger, but not on it. Not yet. The stable lacked the usual snorts and huffs he'd grown accustomed to over the last several centuries. He glanced at each stall as he passed, but saw no movement in any of them. That worried him the most. Usually the reindeer's antlers, common to males and females alike, protruded above the half-doors that enclosed each stall. But none did this time. Was he already too late? Upon closer inspection, blood and gore tainted the floors, walls, and doors of the first four rows of stalls. Santa's arms quivered, and a lump clogged his throat, but he moved forward nonetheless. This is bad. Very, very bad. To his right, in the last stall before Donner's, 
lay the mangled carcass of a large beast, motionless in the hay. Vixen, his favorite. She had always lit the way for the rest of them. Worse still, a smaller four-legged form lay next to her. Vixen's calf. Santa had hoped the calf could take his mother's place someday soon. He counted them down mentally. Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, all of them dead. If Donner's dead too, and Blitzen's the cause, then... He cursed again. This was even worse than Crandall had said. When Santa reached the final pair of stalls, one right across from the other, he raised his shotgun, ready for whatever may come. He leaned forward and peered into Donner's stall first, a ten-by-twelve compartment now shrouded in darkness. He couldn't be sure because of the heavy shadows, but he thought he perceived something was in there, laying on the bed of hay. Crunch! Snap! Santa whirled around. A dark mass slammed into him. Cherry flashed with two deafening bangs in quick succession, and sticky warmth splattered on Santa's face. He landed in a mound of hay in Donner's stall. The mass dropped beside him, now a headless reindeer-sized corpse with its neck eviscerated and pulsing dark liquid. He noticed a name embroidered in its leather bridle. Blitzen. Santa moaned, and his heart dropped into his churning stomach. Blitzen had become a monster, and now he lay dead beside Santa. Whatever malady had seized Blitzen had all but ruined Christmas this year. What a nightmare! But hopefully Donner had survived and could pull the sleigh on his own. It wasn't an impossible feat, but it wouldn't be easy either. Santa wiped Blitzen's gore from his face and growled at the abundance of red stains on his formerly white coat. Ruined. But at least he was unharmed. Something groaned behind him, and Santa's heart leaped up into his throat. Still seated, he twisted around. A pair of glowing yellow eyes emerged from the darkness of Donner's stall along with a bloodied snout, reddened teeth accentuated by receding purple gums, and a pair of long multi-pronged antlers. Donner, but not anymore. Something else, dark and sinister, somehow dead, yet still living, just like Blitzen. The undead reindeer snarled and lurched forward. Santa unloaded Cherry's third barrel. The blast sheared off Donner's front legs and dug deep lacerations into his torso, but it didn't kill him. Instead, what remained of his corrupted head and torso rammed into Santa's chest, knocking him flat on his back. Donner groaned again, and in spite of the damage, he actually slithered toward Santa's face. Impossible! Santa couldn't move. Even without his forelegs, Donner still weighed too much for Santa to get out from under him. Santa braced his left forearm under Donner's blood-stained chin to keep the beast's bloody, gnashing teeth from reaching his face. Shotgun out of ammo. Dropped it anyway. Santa's jaw tightened. Only one thing left to do. Santa skinned his bowie knife with his free hand and plunged it into Donner's glowing left eye. A throaty moan gurgled from Donner's throat. Then he convulsed once and slumped next to Blitzen. Dead. Again. Too close. Far too close. Santa lay still in the hay, sucking in breath after labored breath. Too fat. Slow. Sluggish. 
He pushed himself up and surveyed the scene, including his coat now thoroughly stained red. Worse yet, all his reindeer were dead. The entire sleigh team. Santa needed at least one reindeer to make his Christmas deliveries. He'd done it with one before, ages ago, but he couldn't do it with zero. What's more, in this blizzard, he wouldn't be able to see anything without Vixen's light. That compounded the nightmare. How could he possibly salvage Christmas from the wreckage of eight dead reindeer? He had to figure something out, or children around the world would wake up Christmas morning to nothing but empty space under their trees, and adults around the world would tear out their hair trying to deal with it. As Santa walked toward the stable door, a faint pink light emanated from Vixen's stall. Santa's heart rate tripled, and he raised his knife, bristling for another attack. He really should have brought more shotgun shells with him. Instead, a young reindeer stepped out of the darkness from beyond Vixen's body. His antlers amounted to little more than nubs atop his head, but he was alive, fully alive. Santa lowered his knife. Vixen's calf had survived after all, and he looked healthy, strong even. He should be, after all the flight training Crandall had put him through this last year. Rudolph's nose glowed red, just like his mother's had. Santa smirked at him. It would be a long shot, but maybe he could save Christmas after all. Come with me, little fella. We've got work to do. Incredible. Thank you, Ben, for sending that our way. And I've got great news for all of you listeners today. Ben Wolf has made What the Frost free to download on Amazon starting today through December 28th. So if you're interested in this series and you want to hear more, you should get on it right now. You can get it while it's still free. But if you're listening after December 28th, please go ahead and check out his work. If you want to connect with him online, you can follow him on Instagram at onebenwolf. That's the number one, one Ben Wolf, on Facebook in the Ben Wolf Pack, or check out his author website, benwolf.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. I love holiday horror, and I'm so excited that you have joined me on this journey to explore a genre that I truly enjoy. Please go forth and enjoy the holiday season with your families, however you prefer to do so. And if you don't love celebrating the holidays, stay tuned for your regularly scheduled horror content from Morbid Medley every month moving forward in the new year. If you want to connect with Morbid Medley, remember that we are at Morbid Medley on all social media platforms. Find us, message us, let us know what you think, tell us what your favorite holiday horror movie is. And remember that the best way to spread the word about us is by word of mouth. So please, if you can leave a review online wherever you like to listen and tell your friends about it. If you know anyone who likes horror and would be interested in hearing more of their favorite content every month, send them our way. Lastly, remember that this is a fully open submission podcast. If you have any horror-related content, horror opinions, academia, reviews, short stories, please send it to morbidmedley at gmail.com. I would love to read it, and I'd love to get you featured on our show. All right, that wraps us up today. Happy holidays, and thank you for visiting your one-stop shop for the bite-sized bazaar.